When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. There was a moon out in space, but a cloud drifted over its face. You kissed me and went on your way the night we called it a day. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, two songs at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And this is a special episode. We are going to be talking about some covers that Bob Dylan performed on his 2015 album, Shadows in the Night. My guest is my pal, Professor Chuck Coletta. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I am very excited to talk to you about this because I know you are a big, big Frank Sinatra fan. And so I am, I don't know that much about him really, other than probably the broad strokes. I'm actually probably more familiar with him as an actor than as a singer. I've seen a lot of his movies and stuff, mm-hmm. but I mean, the, the music I haven't interacted with a whole lot. And these albums that Bob Dylan did, the triumvirate of records, the shadows in the night and then fallen angels. And then the triple album <laughs> triplicate, <laughs> we have not gotten to those yet on this show, because as I've you know, mentioned here and there, these albums didn't quite do it for me. <laughs> At the time, I was a little like, okay, you know, a lot of ballads, uh, you know, whatever. But like anything with Bob Dylan, it's always worthy of reappraisal because I find that you something you maybe didn't click with you at a certain point in your life and you come back to it later. And then all of a sudden it does. So I'm excited that for this Christmas show, the show is airing, is dropping on on Christmas Eve. Normally, uh, we do a couple of songs from the Christmas in the Heart record, but I figured, you know what, let's. Let's like give this album, Shadows in the Night, a kind of a, a, a Christmas present by finally covering it on on the uh, on the show here. So we're we're going to be talking about two songs, the opening two actually from the record, which is "I'm a Fool for You" and then "The Night We Called It a Day." And of course, I read a couple of lines from that song at the at the top of the show. But so, Chuck, just so we can get a baseline here, where is your knowledge of Bob Dylan's work? Well, I, I think I'm probably the most superficial guest you've had on this show. Um, I, I know the hits and I know the, the, the sort of the main ones, especially from, from the 60s when he first burst through. But I have always been way behind the times in terms of music. <laughs> um, I was listening to Frank Sinatra when I was in high school. Um, if you asked me literally today, name three songs by Taylor Swift or U2 or anybody sort of after the Beatles, I'm, I'm lost. Uh, I'm, I'm only a few years older than you are, but I was influenced by my uncle who was a a physician, but a massive music fan. And he spent his life collecting all different kinds of genres, but Frank Sinatra was the top of the peak. And after he died, he, I got a lot of his music. And so I've got something like 9,000 songs on my laptop, mostly from every genre, but Frank Sinatra is the is the standout uh, from my uncle and my father and my that generation of people, Italian Americans growing up. Frank Sinatra was only the Pope was bigger, I think, <laughs> than, than Frank Sinatra. So okay, uh, your 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 brief mentioning of uh, uh, the the young Chuck Coletta Chronicles uh, makes me want to ask you, like, what? So when you you know talk to your friends in in at that age and you presented your music to them what was their reaction did most of your friends kind of roll their eyes like what what is what are you listening to and then conversely 
was the music of of the time because you say you're only a couple years older than me like did, did that music just not appeal to you i mean when you got to it you just kind of went eh, that's all right fine but let me go back to my old blue eyes records i i think that was it and it was it was um just that that era of music that's what i ended up listening to all the time and i i wasn't watching mtv and i wasn't paying attention to michael jackson i don't know what the hell i was doing but um you know if you asked me who was I listening to? Again, it wasn't just Sinatra, but it was Dean Martin and Doris Day and Rosemary Clooney. That was just the music that I gravitated to for some unknown reason. But uh, uh, I've, I've always liked it. Oh, and I should say, I should just mention that the very first concert that I ever went to, my parents took us, it was Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> with uh, Henny Youngman as the opening act. So, you were probably the only person there. That did not remember World War II, I would say. I think that's probably a safe bet. So, okay. I mean, look, I will say that when I was a kid, when I was like kind of your age you were talking about, I wasn't interested in any of this stuff. You know what I mean? I was just like, "Ah." but as I've gotten older, I have grown to have an appreciation for this kind of music. You know, uh, again, I I do. I come at my knowledge of Sinatra, like I said, more from as an actor. I would say that of all the popular music stars that have ever crossed over into acting frank sinatra far and away has the greatest career as an actor i mean he he had a uh, again we don't want to turn this too much into an episode of the film and water podcast which of course you've been on first of all he had a really good eye for for good movies you know, I mean, whether it was the Manchurian Candidate, you know, or suddenly, you know, I love that. that's a right. kind of a lesser known one that's really plays a presidential assassin in that movie. He had uh, some came running with Dean Martin. That's another movie that I really, really love. He really picked good movies. And he also did a lot of stuff that you would imagine somebody of his popularity probably would shy away from because it was edgy material. You know, you could see someone of his massive popularity, and he was the biggest of the big, as you say. Only the Pope was bigger, you know, to a lot of people, not just Italians. Um, that that somebody like him would pick safe material because he wanted to cross over. But no, you know, he goes and he does from here to eternity, and he wins an Oscar for you know what I mean. It's like right. he really his filmography is really pretty remarkable, and. Again, that's where I kind of know him from is is uh, is is that. And actually, it's so funny. Have you ever seen a movie? Again, I'm sorry, we're turning this into a oh, film and water episode already. But have you ever seen a movie called Advise and Consent? Oh movie? yes, yes, you know, that's very good. Auto Premager, great movie, and it's all about the back backstage shenanigans of politics and all the double dealing and all the chicanery that goes on in a shocking that goes on in politics. And there's a scene in that movie in a gay bar. Which for 1962 right. was completely verboten, like totally not. But Otto Preminger, of course, loved to push the envelope, and he and he got that scene in there. And playing in that gay bar is a Frank Sinatra song, which right. of course Sinatra would have had to allow. Right. And I remember thinking, boy, that, it's gutsy, you know, 1962 to have that in your movie. You know what I mean? So uh, he right. really was. He deserves. I don't want to say more credit than he gets because, I mean, he's Frank Sinatra, one of the most famous (laughs) singers ever. It's not like he's unknown. But I feel like he probably took more chances with his career than you would expect from someone of his stature. And I think that is connected to the show that we're doing. I think it's part of the reason that Bob Dylan seemed to admire him so much, partly because he loved the music. But I also think he, frankly, admired how Sinatra managed his fame 
over the decades that he was so huge across the world. Right. Uh, and I'll just mention one film. I think Otto Preminger directed The Man with the Golden Arm, where yes. Frank Sinatra yep. played a heroin addict yep. uh, in the 50s. And that was that was one of the first movies that was deal- really dealing with drugs. And, and one last little bit of trivia for, for movies. He was originally supposed to have the Brando role in On the Waterfront. Um, wow. And, he, wow. and he backed out of it at the last minute. They, they think they did some costume tests, but it would have been a totally different film. But, I, but, but going back to Dylan, I think you're right that these are two people who are sort of the voice of their generation t- to a certain extent. And when you're Bob Dylan, I think he described Frank Sinatra as sort of the mountain that you have to sort of deal with. That's what, <laughs> what he was thinking about with these songs. You, you can't sort of top him. You're just sort of paying respect to him. And, you know, you, you, I can see Dylan sort of really having a, a respect for him as an artist for someone who did what they wanted to do over the long haul, which is what Dylan's doing right now. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we know famously Frank Sinatra was not, again, you can school me on this if I'm wrong, but Sinatra was sort of famously not a real big fan of rock music. You know, he thought a lot of it was kind of garbage and, and, you know, that's not unusual for someone of his generation to kind of come along and look at this stuff and be like, what is all this stuff? But I, I do know that like he did respect Dylan, uh, right. on his own terms and especially the song that I think Corda like, I don't know, maybe the overstating it, like bound them together a little bit across the transom was Bob's 1963 song, Restless Farewell, which is the final track on the times they are a change in. And we've covered that on the show because it is very much a, I'm getting a lot of shit from a lot of people and I am going to just fight that off. I'm going to fight off. The rumors, I mean, there's a line in the song, he even says that the dust of rumor covers me, but I'm going to stand, I'm going to make, the, the song ends with, I'll make my stand and remain as I am, and I'll bid farewell and not give a damn. I mean, that was, those are lines that Frank Sinatra would certainly, you could say, right. lived up to. I mean, I did it my way. That's the, right. it's the same song, basically. <laughs> so supposedly that was something that at some point got in Sinatra's ears. And was like, hey, that kid's good. You know, there's my terrible Frank Sinatra impression. And then (laughs) years later in 1995, I think, six, when they did the Frank Sinatra. Well, it would have been 95 because happenstance, we're recording this on Frank Sinatra's birthday. Uh, that was not planned. We just, just, it just happened that way. But on, for Frank Sinatra's 80th birthday on that television special, Bob Dylan performs and everyone else, I think, at that special sang a Sinatra song. To Frank Sinatra sitting at sitting at a table, Dylan sang his own song. He sang Russell's Farewell, supposedly at the request of Frank Sinatra. So it's it's clearly a song that the two of them, you know, kind of connected on. And you said you could sort of imagine Frank Sinatra reading those lines and being like, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's exactly how I feel. So uh, they obviously had a lot of respect for one another. And there's that famous photo of them at the party with uh with uh there's two photos i've seen there's one of dylan don rickles and frank sinatra which is you know that's a (laughs) that's a crossword puzzle right there and then there's uh dylan bruce springsteen and frank sinatra which is just you can't even wrap your head around the level of fame achieved by those three men in that one picture i mean you're amazing you know it's like a mount rushmore of popular music of the latter half of the 20th century so okay we're going to be talking about, as I said, these two songs, I'm a Fool to Want You and The Night We Called It a Day. But as a, in, a, in a greater sense, what was your impression when you listened to this record, The Shadows in the Night? Because, you know, Bob Dylan, 
not known for having the most beautiful instrument in the world in terms of his vocal quality. And yet here he is kind of, you know, not that that there aren't arrangements, but he's using his band to his own purposes and pushing his, his vocals to the forefront. And for a lot of people, they're like, really, do I want to hear this guy croaking through some of the greatest songs in the American songbook? But uh, as a Sinatra fan, when you heard this record, what was your overall impression of it? Well, I, I I thought this was really interesting. Um, You know, I think this is not um, original with me, but someone once said that, you know, there are people who are singers who have beautiful voices like Frank Sinatra. And then there are people who don't have traditional voices, but are beautiful in their own way. I would say like Dylan or Billie Holiday or Louis Armstrong, they've got a certain Mm. quality. And it's interesting to see um, someone take on, this other genre uh, that they're not associated with. I was doing a little research and um, the New Yorker in magazine in 2015, the critics said, it's probably best to think of this um, Sinatra album as um, Dylan's conscious return to compositions of the pre-rock era, much in the way it was uh, of Dylan's two early 1990s records, Good as good as I've been to you, and word gone wrong. Yeah, word gone wrong. Yeah, country yep. blues. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's what it is. You know, and the way I look at this is, I teach a class on um, media and culture, and we spend a couple of weeks on advertising and television and movies, and we do a little bit about the music industry, and um, we talk about that pre-rock and roll era, and that's the era that Bob Dylan grew up in. Right. He was a kid in the 40s and early 50s. And so before Elvis hit the scene, he was listening to people like Tony Bennett and Dean Martin and Hank Williams, you know, that pre-rock era. And I can see that this this means something to someone of Bob Dylan's age. Absolutely. In the 80s, when he got a songwriter award, I forget the name of it, but it was some award that he got for, you know, his career. And he was asked when he was at this dinner uh you know what do you is there anything you want while you're here anything special we can do for you and his only request was to be photographed with Dinah Shore <laughs> and if you go and you google it there's a ton of pictures of Dinah Shore with this uh really deliriously looking Bob Dylan hanging around her neck giving her a kiss on the cheek and they just look like they are thick as thieves together and you know people were like really Dinah Shore you know, like that's the boy, you know, the guy that sang like a Rolling Stone at Desolation Row. He wants to be with Dinah Shore, but he did because, as you say, he has an appreciation for this music. He's covered when he, you know, in, in concert, he's covered like the ink spots, right. you know, I mean, something is <laughs> seemingly archaic as that. Uh, so the man, you know, and, and he just wrote that book, The the uh, Philosophy of Modern Song, where half this not maybe not half but a good chunk of the songs are from not the rock and roll and are from a, an era from his childhood as you say so yeah the man has always had a sort of omnivore kind of uh <laughs> appreciation right. of music in all of its forms and again i think as someone who has had to manage a career in the public eye as long as he have as long as he has i think part of it is that he sinatra remains this iconic figure and so he can appreciate the music and the persona itself now i will say like i said when i got this record i was i mean clearly bob's putting on a a, yet another persona here the cover looks like one of those blue note records you know i mean they're they're mimicking the graphic design um if you look on the back cover 
there is a photo, one of many, of Bob Dylan being photographed with strange, mysterious-looking women that are not explained. And in this one, it's it's him and a woman in a domino mask with a relatively pneumatic woman, let's say, looking at, <laughs> uh, I, I believe, a record. And it's just one of those, like, it's just meant to make you go, what the hell is that all about? What is that thing? But so this this album, he purposely sings songs that have been sung by Frank Sinatra. Now, I don't know enough about Sinatra to know whether that rule was applied to Fallen Angels and then Triplicate. I think some of the songs were not not sang right. by Sinatra at some point, but these were all done by Frank Sinatra at one point. Even that Lucky Old Son, which is a song that I am familiar with, and I didn't necessarily right. think that Sinatra would have would have sang that. So the, the you know the opening track is "I'm a Fool to Want You." Now this is a song written by Jack Wolf, Joel Hearn, and Frank Sinatra. He actually has a writing credit on this. And again, uh, underscoring how little I know about Sinatra really as a performer, I didn't know that he even had any writing credits. I always assumed he, I don't want to do just as if that's not a lot, but I always assumed he just sang songs that other people gave him. I never knew he had any writing credits at all in any songs. I think he has a handful. I don't, it, okay. it's it's not many. It's probably under 10 um, and I believe he added, I don't know exactly what he added to this song, but it was with the uh, full cooperation of the artists it, or the, the other writers. It wasn't, well, we're just going to slap his name on it so he can get a, a copyright. But um, he, he normally was an interpreter of songs. He had a really good ear uh, for all different kinds of genres. And so someone like Sinatra or, or even before him being Crosby, they would do country songs. They would do Hawaiian songs. They would do novelty songs. Um, they sort of cast a wider net than than stars do now. Mm. Didn't Sinatra rewrite a line in uh, "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas"? Am I am I remember, am I hearing that wrong? So is that story incorrect? I feel like I read that that when he went to cover uh, "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas," the line in the song originally was "We'll have to muddle through somehow," because the song was written during the war. And by the time he got to it, he thought that was too downer, and they changed it to I think "Hang Your Hang Your Brightest Star Across that the Bow" or something. That like he personally true. changed that line, and I thought, wow, again, that's that takes a certain amount of chutzpah to say I'm going right. to take this classic song and <laughs> I'm going to rewrite a line in it. But and that's that's a that's a movie that Bob Dylan has even sort of talked about that he was a fan of because he's a huge fan of Judy Garland. So there's like another kind of Dylan connection even right. even in that. So this song. Uh, can you give us some history of this song? Like what album of Sinatra's does this appear on? Is this one of your favorites of his? Well, this actually didn't, didn't even appear on an album. This was a single. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Frank Sinatra was at the lowest point of his career um, in the late forties, early fifties. He had been the number one or one of the top uh, musical draws during world war two. But after the war, the big bands were starting to break up. Um, in that sort of era before Elvis, there were lots of different kind of hits and everywhere. And Sinatra's career was really in, in the dumper. Um, Mitch Miller had taken over Columbia Records. And um, Sinatra had lost his contract, I think, with MGM at the time. Uh, his marriage was, was falling apart. Uh, he was seeing Ava Gardner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why was he depressed again? Like, wait, he was depressed. He was right. dating right. Ava Gardner, and he was depressed. Okay. Well, you know, it was his marriage was breaking up. He had had three. He had three kids. They were, had been married for ten years, and his wife was Nancy, who his first wife Nancy only died 
about two or three years ago. She was over a hundred when she died. Holy Mac. Wow. Um, and he kept a relationship with her the rest of their lives, even though he was married to other people, he always sort of went back and was the father figure for, for his family. Um, but uh, Mitch Miller was say, seeing that um, novelty songs were the th- way to go. And so he forced on artists like Rosemary Clooney, the come on to my house song, which she mm-hmm. refused to sing. Um, and um, which Bob talks about in uh, the philosophy of modern songbook. Right. And, uh, and the, uh, the song that Mitch Miller wanted Sinatra to sing, which he did record was something called mama will bark. It is generally considered to be Frank Sinatra's worst song, <laughs> something that he should not have done. Um, there was a, um, an early TV star named Dagmar, who has long since been forgotten. But she was sort of like a, a big, zoftic, blonde kind of comedian. Sort of think of like a second-rate Mae West. Kind of. Okay. And she really could not sing a note. Um, and so she sort of warbles through this song, and Frank Sinatra is singing, and then they have dogs barking. Oh, boy. Um, and it, it is absolutely the low point. And the B side of the record was um, I'm a Fool to Want You, which people see as uh, one of the greatest songs of all time that he ever did. So it's interesting. It's on one record, you've got the best and the worst of that era. Yeah, so they didn't. So, I mean, it, it was it. Did it become a hit accidentally? Like people were like, hey, this this right. B side is way better. Right. The disc jockeys picked it up. And and what I think really sort of catapulted the song was. Frank Sinatra was one of those stars, sort of like Bob Dylan, that people followed their lives and their careers and how is their artistry, you know, uh, being impacted by their lives. And people saw this as him wrestling with this relationship with Ava Gardner. You know, I'm a fool to want you. I'm I'm giving up my wife and my kids and I'm going to run off across the world with you. And um, their relationship was just totally fraught. Sinatra had supposedly had a few, um, not really, but attempted suicide attempts. He he famously was in a hotel room with Ava Gardner and shot a gun, and she rushed in thinking he was dead, and he had shot the pillow. He was he was really just sort of a total wreck. Um, and in this in his version of the song, he just sort of pours out his all of his emotion into um, into uh, into these lyrics. And just to just to the story, their marriage didn't last, but she was the one who sort of forced um, Harry Cohn to give him that role in From Here to Eternity. From Here to Eternity. His career around. Right, so which, this was a really important song for him. Which is just as a side road, supposedly paraphrased in The Godfather. That's the whole, you know, the 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 whole b- opening bit of that about the 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 singer that wants the movie that he can't get and leads to the horse's head in the bed. That's I don't think it was sort of meant to be Frank Sinatra, but it's it's simply taking something from Hollywood history and using it for the well, purposes right. of the movie. You know, that's I mean, because right. like, I mean, the guy even talks about he's like, this is a character I wouldn't even have to act. I could just play myself, which a lot of people said Frank Sinatra kind of was in Frank right. in From Here to Eternity. Um, well, so th- that's right. Um, Al Martino, who played Johnny Fontaine, Johnny Fontaine. In, yeah. In, in The Godfather. Everybody knew that was supposed to be Frank Sinatra. Uh, and Frank Sinatra supposedly, you know, hated that, that uh, he did have, he did know mobsters. People who worked in clubs did know mobsters. Uh, but um, there is a kernel of truth that 
Tommy Dorsey wouldn't let him out of his contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually somebody convinced him to do so, but there was no horse's head in a bed or anything. <laughs> um, now Dylan does not mention, he does not uh, give devote a chapter to I'm a fool for you in his book, philosophy of modern song, but he does mention it in the chapter on pump it up by Elvis Costello. And he, fe- it has this quote from him where he says, knowing a singer's life story doesn't particularly help your understanding of a song. Frank Sinatra's feelings over Ava Gardner allegedly inform I'm a fool to want you, but that's just trivia. It's what a song makes you feel about your own life. That's important. Bob, thank you so much for letting everybody know that you listen to my show. Because <laughs> that's the, I felt so vindicated when I read that quote, because it's like chapter two of the book. I was like, yeah, that's the whole point of Bob Dylan. And I really appreciate Bob just, just stating it bluntly like that. I really, it really, really did me a solid. Um, so the song uh, continues on. It says, I'm a fool to hold you, such a fool to hold you, to seek a kiss, not mine alone, to share a kiss the devil has known. Time and again, I said, I'd leave you. Time and again, I went away. But then would you come the time when I would need you? And once again, these words I'll have to say, take me back. I love you. Pity me. I need you. I know it's wrong. It must be wrong. But right or wrong, I can't get along without you. That line about uh, the uh, to share a kiss the devil has known, that is a hell of a thing to say to somebody that, yeah, you're, you've been catting around with other people uh, to the point where I would... I would say you've probably been kissing Satan himself. Like that's a, that's a, that's a hell of a a line for a a song that seems kind of, I think for a lot of people of a certain age, maybe not you, Chuck, because you say you're out of, you're you're out of generational step with other people's music. But like for someone like me, that is not a line I would imagine is in a song from like the 1940s. No, no. And 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 I, I think what, what happened around this time for, for Sinatra, and maybe what Dylan's picking up on, if you look at all the songs that Sinatra did that Dylan covers, it's not the big and brassy ones, you know, mm-hmm. New York, New York. It's the it's the quiet, it's the ballad, it's the tender moments. And what happened in the 40s, Sinatra's fans were were the Bobby Soxers, were teenage girls. He was a really a teen idol. You watch old Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yes. Up, yep, up yep. There. The chicken one, the, the, the one right. in the chicken ranch. <laughs> yeah. He's making the girls uh, drop eggs because right. they're all so <laughs> enraptured with the, uh, the rooster singing at the microphone. <laughs> and, and what happened after, like starting now is his fans became men who, you know, that they saw him or in their, they saw themselves in his lyrics. So he was able to sort of, Cross genders. Now, he he became you know popular with everybody. He was always popular with everybody. But his his fan base really shifted in a large way to men as sort of someone who had been around and had been knocked down. And and I think that's what people liked about Frank Sinatra that he was a winner, and he you know he 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 ran the show. But he had been down and out. There were stories where around this time people who he had made hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars for turned their backs on him. Mm-hmm. And so. He, he's just pouring it all out. And I think Dylan does a good job with that, with those lyrics. Well, that's, that's perfect. I wanted to ask you, what did you think of it? Because if you're, as, as you say, you're, you're, you knew Dylan from, you know, Dylan from the hits, you know, and right. from his, his role as a professor of pop culture, you have to be aware of anybody that's been alive in America in the last 50 years is aware of Bob Dylan on some right. level. Uh, even if you're a kid and you don't know the songs, you know, certain lines and times are changing. Like that's a phrase in the culture. What, I mean, I would imagine you have not heard uh, – I mean, they don't play Bob Dylan on the radio. They don't play Bob Dylan on Sirius XM 
outside of his classic songs. They don't play anything of the last 25 years. I mean, we listen to Sirius XM all the time. You would not know Bob Dylan has released a new song in, in a, in a quarter century by what they play. So I imagine this must have been a little bit of a, like a, like an ear shock to you to hear this. What did, what did you think of the performance? I thought it was really strong. I mean, I, I really liked it. And I, I think that, you know, he wasn't just tossing this off, uh, that, that these songs and Frank Sinatra m- must mean something to Dylan. Um, and I know exactly what you're talking about, how, you know, he, he might not be at the, Dylan might not be at the forefront of sort of youth culture today. Um, but, you know, that's just popular culture. I had a student tell me about two weeks ago, just I was passing out candy canes, you know, it was the end of the semester. Here's a candy cane. And one of the students says, well, this reminds me of Mariah Carey. I said, Mariah Carey? She goes, well, people of my generation think of Mariah Carey in terms of Christmas. Said, oh, my God, <laughs> your generation, you know. <laughs> Another student told me, well, I like to read old books. Oh, like what? Like Harry Potter. So, you know. Oh, that's, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but that's what, uh, what's important about a show like this. You know, that there are people who, who do care about this. I have students in my TV history class who still watch MASH and they know all the characters. And um, so that's what's important. You have to keep all this stuff alive and you Mm -hmm. can't just sort of listen to, well, I only listen to this and, you know, maybe I should branch out more beyond, you know, Cole Porter, but uh, I'll have to do that (laughs) next year. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, yeah, obviously Bob Dylan is, is he's 80 years old and he's been around for 60 years and he is certainly not uh, what you would think of uh, in any respect as a modern artist, the way you think of, you know, you look, go watch the commercial for, you know, the Grammys and you see the names and it's, you know, Bob Dylan's not, it's, you know, it's Post Malone and Taylor Swift and, you know, Drake or whatever. But at the same time, uh, when Bob Dylan did those cover records that you mentioned, um, good as I've been to you and world gone wrong, he was excavating songs that a lot of people probably never heard of. And right. by the fact that Bob Dylan has a larger fan base than kind of anybody that's doing that kind of work, he's presenting those songs to people that had never heard them before. I was one of those people. I got right. those records. I love those records. I absolutely love those records. But I was only vaguely familiar with a handful of those songs. But now I know them. Now I know what you know Two Soldiers is, and I know what Jack O'Rourke is, and I know what Lone Pilgrim is, thanks right. to Bob. And that's kind of what he's doing here. He's like, okay. I mean, he had a quote saying, we're not covering these songs, we're uncovering these songs. Right, right. And supposedly, he recorded most of this record, or all of it, in Capitol Studios Studio B, where Frank Sinatra recorded a bulk of his records. Right. So Bob was absolutely trying to sort of summon the ghosts of Frank Sinatra and producers past by using the, you know, quite literally using the same stomping grounds uh, that he was, that he was doing. And I found an interesting quote from one of the engineers who worked on the record. And he said that Dylan did two to three takes of every song, Wow, which un- a little unusual for Bob. Now that makes me think, okay, well, I mean, I don't know how well these records sold, are we going to eventually get a bootleg series set of all of those outtakes? Because if he's doing two to three takes of every song and he did 50 songs across three records, that's a lot of outtakes. <laughs> that's a, and, and that's not even uh, counting what songs he might've done that never made it on the record at all. We don't know. We, the, the news of these records is, is kind of didn't really, hasn't really gotten out very much. Well, you know, there are the one thing I tell my students in, in terms of popular culture is that popular culture is transitory. Um, and very few people and things 
are remembered or stand the test of time. You know, we, we're still watching I Love Lucy seven <laughs> years later, but a lot of other shows have been long forgotten. But people like Bob Dylan and Billie Holiday and Sinatra and, you know, even Madonna, maybe, I don't know, will be remembered when, you know, the, the hit of the moment is, is long forgotten. So I think he's really doing a service. And you're doing a service for, for doing this show. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank I you for not, your service. Right? Th- thank you very much, Chuck. So um, so do you have any uh, particular, I don't want to put you on the spot in case you don't have one, but do you have any, because I was reading about I'm a Fool for You, and it said it's been covered over a hundred times. Uh, in fact, the, there were so many on the Wikipedia page about it, there were so many covers, it didn't even list them all. Because they're just like, or just covered it. Do you, do you have any other versions you've heard that you really have liked, or is is Frank's version still like to me, you know, I, the I, one? I think my my two favorite female singers, again, old old school, are um, Ella Fitzgerald and, and Doris Day. Mm. I, I, I and you know, I I listen to a lot of the Sinatra on um, Sirius Radio, like you mentioned, um, and. A lot of people have covered these songs, you know, Edie, Edie Gourmet, who was su- surprisingly great. I, I didn't learn that until just recently started listening to her. But I, I would say anything by Ella Fitzgerald or Rosemary Clooney fr- from the old school. I, I don't have any one in particular. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what is it to you about? Okay. Let, let me ask you this, because I asked this question to people about Bob. Do you have a particular relatively favorite era of Sinatra in terms of as a recording artist? Is it like the, cause I will tell you this, uh, my wife and I go to uh, used record stores all the time. That is something we just spend all the time. We were just at one this weekend. If we make it a habit of any time we're in a new town, we kind of go and find an old record store and we buy, we buy a lot of comedy records, but we like to find, you know, just like, Oh, that's an unusual little thing. And, you know, I will go through the Sinatra, you know, uh, chunk of whatever record store. And there's always some, and you can just from the, from the, the look of his, the sleeves, you could sort of see the era where it's like in the fifties, it's all kind of like super sad and lonely stuff. Right. You know? <laughs> like it's just super like, you know, he's just like, Oh, everything just sucks. And it's terrible. And then you get the kind of the swing in sixties and it's that kind of stuff. And then of course, by the time he moved into the seventies, he had become the sort of legendary figure. And then, right. you know, you could just tell by the, just the art direction, of the career as ha- as it's winding through the eras of America. Do you have a particular relatively favorite era of his, or is it all over the place? Well, I, I think, that, you know, I really do like the, I have the um, Columbia CD collection, which is, I don't know, 20 CDs or something like that. And his voice in the forties was, was really just beautiful. I mean, he can, the way he, I am not a musician. I can't play a note uh, or sing a note, uh, but the, his breath control, his, his style, it that that really appeals to me. And before I forget, there is one album uh, that he did that almost nobody knows that it was the only album he did that didn't chart um, from 1970, which which is as about as close to Dylan as he ever got. I don't know. I don't think Sinatra ever recorded a Dylan song. Can you imagine uh, that? Imagine that he, he did a Beatles song. We never did a Dylan song as far as no, I know. He even did it. I um it, it is it is an easy being green. That's, there's a Frank Sinatra version of that, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, but he did an album called Watertown, which is a concept album from 1970, uh, where he basically plays a a man in a small upstate New York town whose wife has just left him, and and he, now he's raising their two sons alone. And it it is about as close to a Dylan song again in a Frank Sinatra kind of way 
and it's really stripped down. It was a bomb when it came out, um, but uh, it's now has sort of cult status. So if anybody's a, a Dylan fan, you don't want to listen to sort of Vegas Sinatra, uh, you might want to check out that one. Now, you said they came out in 1970? Right, 1970. Okay, and it's called, the, the name of the record is called Watertown. Watertown. And you can, okay. it's, it's all on YouTube. You can, you can, okay. you can, or Spotify, you can find it anywhere. All right. Well, if I, I, I'll tell you, Chuck, I, you probably are not familiar with this. Again, you, since you, you, your knowledge of Bob is, is on, is kind of on just on the hits, but I will give you the parallel I can make there for you. Uh, and this is stretching it, but what the hell? It's my show. Um, is, uh, Bob's first real bomb as a, uh, of a record came out in 1970. Oh, um, it's okay. called self portrait and it is by, it is an all cover. Well, it's not all covers, but it is a mostly covers record. It's a double album and people, he was coming off of John Wesley Harding and Nashville skyline, which features lay lady lay, which right. is a song everybody knows. Right. And even, even that people were willing to follow, but new self portrait people were like, what? In fact, there's a famous Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone review that opens with the line. What is this shit? <laughs> so both Bob and Sinatra had, you know, real dings in their armor the same year. That's kind of interesting. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so there you go. And cause he sings a bunch of kind of old timey songs. I mean, there's some of his own songs and he sings, uh, he sings the boxer by Simon and Garfield. He does sing some contemporary stuff, but he also sings a lot of old songs from a long gone era and people in 1970 that's not what they wanted from bob dylan they were like you know come on bob go back to that's right go back well, to, uh, to thank you there you go i gotta listen to this watertown that sounds really interesting um frank sinatra doing a concept record is just a funny idea like what like really <laughs> doing a concept record well, you know, believe it or not he's often given credit for helping to spur the concept album now his concepts were um, you know, um, loneliness or happiness, or mm-hmm. he did one where all the songs are dealing with the moon. You know, he mentions wow. the moon. And, that's that's but, from the but, is that from the eighties? Is that the one from the eighties? And there was oh, from the eighties that, that, that? that might be from the sixties. I'm not. Okay. I'll have to double check. I thought there was one that he did that was like from the eighties. That was like way out there. <laughs> that, that, he he did, um, but he also helped spur the popularity of the long playing record. You know, mm-hmm. so he really mm-hmm. was the the uh, uh, and Bing Crosby and Sinatra are help, are often given credit for helping to change the style of singing with the microphone. You didn't have to shout at the top of your lungs; you mm. could be intimate. And he, and I, and I think Bob's able to do that with this record too. You're intimate, and he's singing it right to you. It's 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 very a, a personal touch, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I, I will mention this, uh, again, I mentioned this on other shows. I mean, I have seen Bob live a bunch of times since these records. And again, like I've said multiple times already, these, so- these albums have not really landed with me. Part of it is that there's just so few up tempo numbers. Like right. they're just ballads. It's just, especially this record. It's ba- It's 10 ballads. And I just, my ears tend to just perk up at something that's a little peppier. And right. like on triplicate, he does a he does a song called Bragging. And that's up tempo. That's Bubba Bragging. And I'm like, that's like my favorite one because it's just peppier. But I will say, when he has sung these songs in concert, to me, he has put them across much more effectively in concert than he does on the record. Yeah. Part of it is he's standing there, he doesn't have an instrument, he's there with the mic, and he is doing what you're talking about, that kind of crooning thing where he is just he's he's got his kind of like uh his legs akimbo you know and he's kind of doing this sort of heroic stance and he's got the mic in his hand and it looks 
for all the world like Frank Sinatra as that chicken in the Bugs Bunny cartoon, right. you know, he's really, and so, yeah, you could see, and knowing what we know now that he has since produced a new record of his own songs post this rough and rowdy ways, which most people, including myself say is one of the best things he's ever done. There's stuff on that record that to me, you can hear in your head and say, this is why he did the Sinatra covers. records. Mm. He was getting, he, he wanted to get to this point as a singer, but he had to take this sort of side road to learn some stuff. Even at this age, 75, 77, 78 years old, still learning new things. And I don't think Rough and Rowdy Ways would be the record it is had he not done this. Had he not well, gone on this route. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so, I mean, again, that's what happened with The Good As I've Been To You and World Gone Wrong. It's like when he kind of does that, when he goes off and he does these covers, he then comes back because his first record of all original material after those two records was Time Out of Mind, which mm. completely put him back on the map. So the, you can sort of see him like kind of going off and just, you know, getting wound up. You know, and being like, all right, I'm going to go dig through this old material that I love. And and because he's Bob Dylan, he has enough commercial heft to be able to put on a record for the rest of us to enjoy. Right. A lot of other artists, probably they would say, you know, his record company would say, we're not putting that out, you know, but he's Bob Dylan. If he wants to well, put out a right. record or, or five of Sinatra <laughs> covers, his, his label is going to do that. So, um, OK, so let's let's move on to the, the second song, uh, which is the second song on the record. The Night We Called It A Day, that's written by Matt Dennis and Paul Adair in 1941. They wrote a bunch of songs together. This apparently was, he recorded it for his 1957 album, Where Are You? But this is also the first solo recording he ever made was of this song. Is that right? Well, that's that's what I that's what I have. Um, and uh, Matt Dennis um, did do a bunch of songs for Sinatra and I think Tommy Dorsey. Probably his most famous one is Angel Eyes, which is which still pops up in movies. He did Everything Happens to Me, uh, Let's Get Away from It All. And there's a really beautiful song called uh, Violets for Your Furs. Um, but again, this is sort of another very contemplative take. It's it's um, very thoughtful. And, and um, I think Dylan did a great job on this one. Yeah, this is one of my favorites. Um, I just think he puts it across in a way that is really and really quite effective. I, I quoted the opening lines and then it gets song goes on and says, I heard the song of the spheres again. That's a, that's a heady line. The song of the spheres, like a minor lament in my ears. I hadn't the heart left to pray the night. We called it a day soft through the dark, the hoot of an owl in the sky, sad though his song, no bluer was he than I, the moon went down, stars were gone, but the sun didn't rise with the dawn. There wasn't a thing left to say the night we called it a day. There wasn't a thing left to say the night we called it a day. One of the things that's remarkable, I found all these songs, is how short they are. I mean, these right. songs are like two in a minute, two. I mean, I know that part of it was popular concerns is that singles were not going to be longer than three minutes. You couldn't get them played. In fact, it was Bob himself with like a Rolling Stone that kind right. of broke that a little where we're like, no, no, we can do a six minute song and people will pay attention. But so much gets so much imagery and so much feeling gets packed into like what, 20 lines. It's really, really remarkable. Well, that that's true. And, and, you know, uh, there's, there's another podcast out there. Um, it's called music from a hundred years ago where there's a guy <laughs> right up your alley, Chuck. Right. Uh, right. It's a guy in Texas um, and he does basically American music from 1890 to about 1955 of all wow. genres. 
And, and I bet and Bob he, listens to that podcast. I would bet if he listens to any team. podcast, he listens to right. that one. And it's like, you know, here's a song, all of, here's a show, songs all about potatoes or songs about the color red and, or, or country songs or whatever. And you, you see that these people who were these sort of Tin Pan Alley songwriters, they might not have much of the formal education, but, but they were poets, you know, and I, I know some people said, you know, Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize, you know, he deserved it. But I, I think someone like Cole Porter or Irving Berlin, you know, they were, they were speaking to people. Those were songs that, that the imagery is beautiful and they're memorable and, um, you know, they, they stick with you. And that's why someone, you know, some of these songs like that you mentioned have been recorded hundreds of times in all genres. Yeah, this one has been uh, the the night we called it a day has been covered by people like, of course, Frank Sinatra. We just saying Chet Baker, Doris Day, your favorite, the high lows and Diana Krall most recently. Um, and I mean, and it, a weird little data point I found was that there is a film from 2003 called The Night We Call It oh. The Night We Called It a Day. It stars Dennis Hopper. Who is of course friends with Bob, and Bob actually appears in Dennis Hopper's film Backfire, uh, which or, or the uh, I forget what it's got. it's got two names, Catch Fire or Backfire, whatever it is. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But he appears in Dennis Hopper's film, makes a cameo there. But in this movie, Dennis Hopper plays Frank Sinatra. Wow! I oh, I've never heard of that one. It's I'm an Australian, yeah, it's an Australian film. It's a comedy. Um, I will say the cover art doesn't uh, fill me with confidence that it's a good film, but uh, but nevertheless, the film does exist, and it says Dennis Hopper again, another Dylan connection, and he plays Frank Sinatra apparently at some point during Frank's career in like the '60s or something. Wow! So I thought that was interesting. So um, now this song, it's the second one. It's interesting for the lyrical content. I mean, it's the night, first of all, the, the inversion of the phrase, the night we called it a day is just clever. You know, that's just inherently right. that, you know, we calling it a day, but it's the night we did it. That's a great, it's kind of amazing that this isn't the last song on the right. record. <laughs> you would think this would be the one that he closes out the record on, but he chose not to, chose not to do that. Now, two things about this song, um, you know, whether it was Bob's choice or Columbia Records's choice or whoever's choice it was, they obviously gave this a little more heft commercially because uh, they made a video. There's an mm. actual video, uh, which is done like an old film noir piece. It's in black and white, and it features Bob emoting as best he can, uh, the giant hunk of wood that Bob is on camera sometimes, <laughs> uh, with Robert Davi, the character actor Robert right. Davi. If anyone doesn't know that name, you know he was one of um, the older Agent Johnson in Die Hard. Put it that. Although for a lot of people, that's an old movie. Um, and then they're both romancing a uh, an actress named Tracy Phillips, and it leads to murder. It's a fun piece. It's clearly very, very. You know, they're just totally borrowing all of the iconography from film noir of that time. That's obviously you know Bob grew up on those movies and he loves those movies. Well, okay. Before I did you did you watch the video? Before? No, no, I didn't. I should have. I'm sorry, I didn't. All right. Uh, My one comment on it is. It maybe would have been nicer if they had cast an actress that wasn't, I don't know, half a century younger than <laughs> both Bob and Robert Duffy. It got a little, it felt a little like, okay, you guys, you guys are a little old to be trying to mack on <laughs> this young woman who looks like your Sharon Stone wasn't available or find uh, someone. Yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it just felt a little like, all right, guys, come on. It just felt a little, 
Um, Bob does not uh, speak in it other than you hear the song playing, um, which is good because a lot of people probably listening to this don't agree. I don't think Bob is a particularly good actor. That's one thing that he, I think he's tried to do like Frank Sinatra and he's not been able to. <laughs> Frank Sinatra is a terrific <laughs> actor. I don't think Bob has ever been really comfortable on camera and I think it shows, but it's a fun piece. Right. And it was nice that they did it to promote this record because you could, you would have imagined this might be the kind of record that really flies under the radar, even though it's a Bob Dylan record and doesn't get that kind of uh, promotional push, but it's nice. I, anytime Bob does a video, I'm always happy to see him, you know, just kind yeah. of, and he's got a gun and he's doing all, and he drives an old timey car. I mean, that must have been an absolutely, That's uh, right. really, really fun shoot to do. Now, you, this, this, um, this song, as you mentioned by Sinatra, it's called, it's from the, uh, the Where Are You record. And I'm looking at the, uh, the sleeve, as I was talking about earlier. And it's, <laughs> it's got like a, a, uh, not watercolor, like a, like a charcoal, color charcoal, Conti crayon kind of sketch of Sinatra with his arm over his face away from the camera and he's smoking a cigarette and it does feel like that's the kind of like those are the lonely records I mean the name of it is where are you so you could just sort of imagine okay this is a whole album full of just sad and lonely Frank Sinatra (laughs) records yeah and and I, I had forgot to mention I looked it up Sinatra actually recorded this song three times so he did it in 41 47 and 57 so you you know it, he did that not quite a lot, but there are several songs where you where he went back and he redid them. And so it's interesting to see you know like Bob you know who sings some of his songs you know from decades ago again, and mm-hmm. you can you know hear how his voice has changed and how his attitudes changed, and that's what I like about someone who's had a long career, an actor, a director, a singer, and so you can sort of see the arc of where they've been going and what interests them and you know what keeps keeps them going. Oh, absolutely. Uh, now, Bob has performed. I do want to mention uh, the live performances. I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, Bob was right after these records came out, he was singing large chunks of these records live. And then uh, since Rough and Rowdy Ways, he's kind of reduced it down to just a cup, just a handful, but he's still doing them. I mean, the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour is almost the entire record with some other songs from his incredibly vast catalog sprinkled in. But even then he finds room for like one or two mm. of these songs. He's, he's singing like melancholy mood occasionally. But so for the night we called it a day, he's performed it 47 times live Wow! between two, 2015 and 2016, which is, that's not nothing. There are some songs in his canon that he, you know, have a big fat goose egg. Uh, and then uh, I'm a fool to want you even more. He sang that 63 times. Wow. Between 2015 and 2016. So again, these were songs that he wanted to try out live. And as I said, I think he's, he actually done a better job of them um, in a live setting than even on the record. Now, the most notable live version of the night we called it a day was when Bob performed it on the next to last episode of the late show with David Letterman uh, just before Dave went off the air pretty much. I mean, he's on, he's got a Netflix show now, but I mean the, his final iter, his final show as a, uh, as a mainstream network talk show host, Bob and Dave obviously have had a great relationship. He appeared on the show in 1984 for what most Dylan fans consider one of his greatest live performances he ever did. Um, he did three songs on Letterman and, um, Chuck, I know you're again, you know, you're not like the biggest Dylan fan. I would, I am curious to see if you ever have the time 
go to YouTube and put on Bob Dylan Letterman 1984. And I want to know what you think because they, he, um, I love being able to explain this to someone who hasn't heard this stuff. So this is so good to me. Um, he decides to sing two songs from his current record, which was called Infidels plus a cover. And he is backed up by three guys that were in a punk band <laughs> and they just rip through these songs in one. I mean, again, I don't know any Dylan fan that doesn't love that performance. It is so powerful. And you could see Letterman is delighted. Right. You could see it in his face. He's so, in fact, at the end of it, he says, can you guys be here every Thursday night? <laughs> uh, and Bob even says, sure. <laughs> Um, and then Letterman, uh, he appeared on Letterman in uh, 1992 for the 10th anniversary uh, late night show, which I was at. First time I ever oh. saw Bob Dylan live was was that performance. And then he appeared in 1993 promoting his World Gone Wrong record where he sang Forever Young. And then he actually did one more appearance as a gag uh, where uh, Paul Schaefer, a couple of years later, where Paul Schaefer disappears Letterman's like, hey, Paul, and Paul's not there. Where's Where did Paul? Where's Paul? And they wander out into the studio, and you see Paul Schaefer practicing with Bob and the band as if he's part of the <laughs> part of the band. And Letterman's like, Paul, we're doing a show. And he's like, sorry, Bob, sorry, sorry. And Bob just kind of looks at it like, oh, I love it. that You know, uh, I'm sure that any comedy show or any variety show would have loved to have booked Bob Dylan, but the only one he had, and he, outside of one performance on Saturday Night Live, he always just kept doing Letterman. So obviously wow. he had a, a kinship with Dave and the fact that he is on, he's the last musical guest for it's, the Letterman show. And he sings this song. He sings the night we called it a day, which of course thematically is perfect. Right. I, I just watched that for the first time uh, today. It's great. But maybe again, I, I'm not the Dylan fan that you are, obviously. He seems uncomfortable you know well, when dave comes out and he <laughs> barely can look at him but you know that's you can bob. see that that letterman loves it but bob is i guess just he's just i don't know what 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 is that what is that he can command an audience of thousands of people but i guess one-on-one -on -one might be hard to deal with uh yes i yes i think that's a that's a that's a hallmark of his appearances when he is just bob dylan uh, sometimes he seems very, very uncomfortable. Uh, that's just, that's just kind of how it is. <laughs> We've all kind of accepted that at this point. When he's not kind of behind the microphone, he sometimes seems very ill at ease and doesn't know where to turn. He doesn't know who to talk right. to. He seems very, you know, I think part of it is he probably just completely refuses to rehearse. Like he's supposed to show up and people are like, we're, we're, we're on television now, Bob. Um, but yeah, he sings, he sings this song. Uh, on Letterman, and you could see again, you could see the delight on Letterman's face that uh, he got Bob to appear one more time. And you know, on the one hand, I would say eh, it might have been cooler if he'd sang one of his own songs, but at the same time, this record was come, this record was out, and right. you know, it's the, the 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 name of it is so perfect. The night we called it a day. It's Letterman is wrapping up this incredible career, and uh, again, I think Letterman, you know, I think probably not dissimilar to the careers of Bob or Frank Sinatra, just in his own arena, somebody that took a lot of hits, did things his own way and kind of ruffled some feathers in some ways, but, but did things in the manner he felt they were the right way to do them and ended up breaking ground in a way that nobody else really had. And again, I think that's why Bob probably respects Letterman the way he does. So I thought that was terrific. It was great to see him one more time. And it was fun to see him sing the song. Now, what did you think of the live performance? Do you feel like it was markedly different than we heard on the record? I'd have to listen to it again. I, I, 
I didn't notice enough of a difference, but maybe mm. I should I should listen to them both again back to back. I don't it's know. again I for some reason I like the Letterman one more than the one on the record. Mm. I don't. That's unusual for me. Usually I'm more of a studio guy, but there's just something. I think there's just something about these songs that when he gets to stand in front of a crowd and do them, right. I think there's just an extra verve to it in a way that isn't quite there on the on the studio record. So you know, again, I'm, I, as much as I want to hear Bob sing his own material, he he clearly enjoys this. He clearly right. enjoys presenting these songs to, to the rest of us. And, uh, I'm, you know, I, I, whatever Avenue Bob wants to take fine. I'm, I'm there, Bob, you know, whatever you want to do, right. you know, I mean, you've done so much for us that if this is something you want to share with us, go right ahead and share it, you know, go do, go do more cover records. If that's what you need to do in between these towering achievements of original song, like rough and rowdy ways <laughs> that you want to do, man, go ahead and do it. And I think the the amazing thing is that he still wants to go out on tour, you know, that he's, you know, 80 years old and he still wants to do this. He doesn't have to. Nope. Um, uh, Sinatra was the same way. Now he probably should have stopped uh, a few years before he did. I, I, I did see Sinatra in concert once in 1992. um, And uh, his opening act was Shirley MacLaine. She came out and sang and danced and it was, I didn't know that she sang like that i knew that she sang in movies she certainly she had like sort musicals. of like a vegas act i guess i didn't that know she that would, she would okay. do and she was kicking up her heels and she was great um and there's there's a wonderful book i know we're almost done talking there's a wonderful little book by pete hamill that came out just before sinatra died called why why sinatra matters and he talks about him that sinatra reminds him of the coliseum in rome that he isn't what he used to be He's, you know, he's a ruin now, you know, he's, you know, older and he's you know, a little bit shabbier, uh, but he is a monument um, and it, you have to sort of, sort of, you know, honor that. And he still wanted to go out and yes, Frank's voice wasn't what it had been. And, but it was, it was a charge when he walked into the room. I remember they didn't even announce him, you know, it was well, not a big buildup, but like, ladies and gentlemen, Frank Sinatra and people <laughs> were just shocked. I, I have never seen that many fur coats on old ladies in, in Cleveland in my, enti- in my entire life. But I, I think you have to give somebody like Dylan credit that, you know, he could be sitting at home, you know, doing whatever, but he wants to go out on tour. That It must mean something. He is a relentlessly creative person. And, and even when he's not doing songs or doing 100 dates a year, he's making metal work. You know, he's writing books about popular song. The guy just cannot stop creating. So, but before we get off this, there's a couple of things I want to mention uh, as, as we are wrapping up. First of all, you mentioned Pete Hamill. Pete Hamill wrote the liner notes to Bob Dylan's 1975 album, Blood on the Tracks. Oh, wow. Which, wow. which you want to, which he got nominated for a Grammy for. And uh, Blood on the Tracks is, to many people's estimation, including my own, the single best Bob Dylan record. That's oh, the, the many, <laughs> there's some great ones. That's the one. But I want to ask you two things about because these are normally questions I ask the Dylan fans when they hear, but I'm going to transpose them okay. for Frank Sinatra. First of all, so one of the one of the things that I um, I experienced uh, that I experienced every single time I go see Bob, I've seen him uh, 25 times now, but it never it never goes away is when you uh, get in the hall, right? And then he comes out and, and like you just mentioned, but with Frank Sinatra, they make very little. Sometimes they don't even announce him at all. They just wander out. Right. Um, but then other times they're just like, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Dylan, like it's not a big deal. 
but you never get over. And most of my guests uh, said the same thing. You do not get over the enormity that it hits you. You're like, there's the guy. There's right. the guy, the guy I've been seeing on my TV screen or been hearing in my ears for 30 odd years. There's the guy that has played for presidents and he's done this and he turned the Beatles on to weed and you know, <laughs> you know, th- he sang with Johnny Cash and he's done he, the Rolling Thunder review and he became a born again Christian and blah, blah, blah. like you, ju- the enormity of it hits you that that is all right there. That guy, he's no longer this abstract concept. He's a, he's just a dude in the same room that you're in. That's right. Did you feel that way when you saw Frank Sinatra? Because, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like, that's Frank Sinatra. Oh, that's true. You know, and and it's interesting you say that. Earlier this year, I went to the Turner Classic Film Festival. I've gone there a couple of times. Oh, man, I want to go to that so bad. And I went to a screening of Giant uh, with James Dean. James Dean. And and, um, the person introducing it was Steven Spielberg. Oh, jeez. And, so I, and I'm, oh sitting, I'm sitting there. I'm literally in its first sort of first come, first serve. I'm in the second row. I'm about 10 feet away from Steven Spielberg. I, I should be this close to this person. You know, I could. I could. And, and then I went to another screening and Warren Beatty walks in. Holy um, and, wow. um, and I went to a talk and it's Bruce Dern talking for an hour. Uh, and just lastly, they had the, the, the foots in the feet in the cement ceremony. And it was for Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda was there and Rita Moreno. And I'm literally standing within 20 feet of all these people. And it's it's just, and you see, you know, yes, they are a normal person and they're life size and, you know, they're scratching their butt too, like everybody else. And, but it's, it's, it's shocking when you see someone like that, that they've been a part of your life forever. I'm, you know, I can't remember a time when I didn't know Frank Sinatra. Or, you know, or, 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 you know, like you with Dylan, that these people mean so much and they don't have to do anything. They just have to be there. Yep. And, and you're, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it really is. It's a, and it, it is for me, it never gets old. It, it's, no. it, it's happened every time, every time I've ever been close enough to really see him. Sometimes I'm so far away that he's just sort of, again, he's this little figure dancing. Well, not dancing. Bob doesn't dance, but you know what I mean? He's like this little figure, but the times when I've been close enough to see his face, and you really just you just got like that. That's the all of the history that this guy walks into a room with, and now I'm in the same room as that guy. And so, like I said, I, I had I been old enough to appreciate it, I would have gone to see Frank Sinatra live just for the experience, just to be able to say I saw Frank Sinatra. I said this guy, this guy that did so much and and you know converted popular music in the 40s and 50s. And right. then became this amazing actor and then this, you know, towering cultural figure and a guy that, you know, certainly like to pick fights sometimes, <laughs> like Sinead <laughs> O'Connor and stuff. Um, but uh, but yeah, still just kind of an amazing thing. And you know, just you mentioned Shirley McLean. I mentioned this movie earlier. He did a movie with Shirley McLean and Dean Martin called Some Came Running. Right. That's great. That is a great great movie and it's one of those like under the wire ones. Like I don't think it's one of his most famous ones. Uh, but boy, is it really good. There was one a couple of years ago. I just, I, I it just came on TCM or something and I was like, Oh, you know what? I've always wanted to see that. I think it's Vincent Minnelli. Uh, right. Again, one of the great directors of all time. And I was like, I had no expectations for it other than I knew they were in it. And I was like, and I, by the end of it, I was like, God, this is just 
it's just fantastic. It's just like, how does this movie not more famous? This well, is know, so good. He's great in it. Dean is great in it. Shirley McLean is great in it. It's just a terrific movie. And what's interesting about that movie in, in the original novel, his character is supposed to die. Um, and they they changed it in the movie where Shirley MacLaine dies because he thought it would give spoiler him a alert. See. Well, spoiler alert. I'm sorry. <laughs> For a uh, six, 70 year old movie, 60 year old movie. But he gave her the big death scene. Because he thought that would help her career and maybe she'd get an Oscar nomination. You know, he really won his Oscar for that death scene and from here to eternity. Mm. But he was sort of his idea. Well, let's 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 give it to her. And so <sighs> she gets the big scene at the end. Uh, and, and you're right. You know, that that is one. If anybody hasn't seen that one, that really is a good movie. I think it's 1959. So it's like Something I can picture 17 year old Bob Dylan. By the way, I don't know if you knew this. Bob Dylan's uh, uncle, I believe, ran a movie theater. Oh, and so uh, he got to see a lot of movies. And so I can sort of imagine, you know, 15, 16 year old Bob Dylan going to see all these movies probably for free, right. you know, and just taking all of this in. And, you know, his movie, his uh, songs are littered with movie quotes and things like yes. that. And uh, but so, yeah, uh, it's uh, it, it, you could say I can I can totally picture young Bob Dylan going to see the maturing can't. Well, he was famous by then, but going to see. Uh, some came running or the, or the man with the golden arm, as you just mentioned, things like that. And just being like, man, this guy, this guy, man, he's good stuff. <laughs> um, well, Chuck, uh, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. No, sometimes well, I people appreciate it. It was great. I love some, some people who are not big Bob Dylan fans are like a little scared to come on because they think it's like, you know, like, oh, I don't know enough. And it's like, no, no, no. I just like to have conversations. And these are records that I feel like for myself, I haven't quite given as total fair shake to as I should have, because again, everything this guy has done for me ends up paying off in some regard, some more than others. But I will admit, I got these records. I listened to them once or twice, and then I just kind of put them off to the side. And I was like, I'll dig out modern times again, but I want to go through all these again and kind of give them another fair shake. And it's been fun to listen to shadows in the night. Uh, I just listened to the whole record all the way through this morning for the first time in years. So it was fun to to kind of give it in this new context. So I really appreciate you coming on and teaching me about uh, Frank oh, Sinatra. Oh, well, thank you very much. I, I was It was a true pleasure. I hope uh, your Bob Dylan fans will uh, be able to handle this much Frank Sinatra. But next <laughs> week is more Dylan. Yeah, next next week will definitely be more Dylan. So now uh, as we as we finish up here, before I ask you how people can find you out on the Internet, I'm going to ask you the standard Pod Dylan exit questions. I'm going to change it a little bit. Normally, I ask people what Bob Dylan recording could be an album, could be his theme time radio show, could be the audio book for philosophy of modern song. If you could sit in on one of those and just be a fly on the wall to watch it get created, what would it be? Now, obviously, for Dylan, that doesn't that answer doesn't you don't really have an answer for that. So I'm going to ask you about Frank Sinatra. If there's a Frank Sinatra song or record that you could just sit and watch get created in front of you, do you have an answer for that? My, one of my favorite songs is that he did called um, "If You Are But a Dream." That he okay. sang it on uh, on an Academy Award winning short called "The House I Live In." That is a beautiful song. Uh, if you are, if, if you are but a dream, I, and I'm not going to butcher the lyrics here, <laughs> but that is absolutely beautiful. And it begins with this short. It's all about racial tolerance. Oh, and, that, that's what the, I've seen right. that one. And, and that's it starts terrific, with him in the recording that's studio. Great. It's great. I show that in one of my classes about multiculturalism. Uh, but that I would love to be anywhere in the in the 40s or where he was at the palace, you know, with all those screaming teenagers. I, that w- that must have been an experience at the time. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. That's short. That's another thing. 
that's it's like way ahead of the curve about about you know not treating people differently because they have different ethnic backgrounds that's and, stuff and, people today need to friggin hear so yeah that's a the great only other short one i would mention great. is just real quick is he did a two-minute set with elvis in 1960 uh when elvis came back from the army frank sinatra hosted a welcome back elvis special <laughs> it's an hour long and they only sing in the last two minutes together they wow. they do one of each other's songs you can find it on youtube but you can hear the girls screaming. Oh my God. Uh, crazy for Elvis. And you know, that, that must've been something to be at. Yeah. Oh man. Bob Dylan would have killed for that. Same with <laughs> Elvis. And he loved Elvis. That would have been amazing. So, all right, man, that's a great, that's a great answer. I'm so glad you had something, uh, even though I didn't prep you that I was going to ask you that uh, first half. So, well, again, Chuck, thank you so much. We've done a bunch of shows together. You've been on film and water. You've been on treasury cast. You've been on, uh, what was the other, what's the other one that you did with you've done film and water. Treasury cast. Oh, mash cast. Of course, oh, mash, mash. mash cast. And they've done pod Dylan. So you're one show away from winning a, a Robbie <laughs> award. I know that's a, that's a big deal for someone uh, as uh, storied as you. I know that's a, that's a big deal. Um, but uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Well, I'm, I'm basically, I'm still on Twitter uh, at Dr. Pop culture, BG SU. And um, I'll just give one little plug here is that in September of 2023, we are going to be holding a Spider-Man and popular culture conference. Um, and it's free and open to the public. And our keynote speaker is going to be Jim Shooter uh, from, mm. uh, from Marvel Comics. So if anybody has any interest in Spider-Man, collector, fan, academic, scholar, in any genre, music, film, television, come on to Bowling Green and, or find me online and submit a proposal and we'll be glad to see you. Very cool. Uh, again, uh, again, thank you so much, Chuck. I said it's, we, we've been friends for a long time uh, across various podcasts, and it's always a delight to talk to you. And I really appreciate you getting to do this because I've been well, wanting you know to get your to stuff, do- Rob. You, I, I, I'm, wow. you, you know your stuff, and whatever the subject is, you really know. <laughs> thank you, I said. I've been, but want to get to these records for a long time, and so I'm glad I got to do it with you. I, I think. Uh, I would not have done it with with anybody that didn't know the other side of it more because I'm like I'm kind of coming at this as like look teach me Chuck and you are a professor <laughs> so it's perfect I, you know lined up really really perfect and again today was Frank Sinatra's birthday of all the thing I totally didn't plan that ring a ding ding right ring a ding ding it ended up being Frank's uh, Frank's birthday so as Bob Dylan himself says, uh, happy birthday, Mr. Frank. So um, again, that's going to do it for this episode of Pod Dylan. You can find all the episodes on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, just please go to patreon.com slash Podcast, like these fine folks did. Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, Paul Ruther, and Henry Bernstein. So uh Thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a great Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays, and uh, we will see you next week. Bye. I hope you got things cleaned up at the house. Uh, when I spent a lot of time, uh, like everybody does, uh, driving around with uh, my son, Harry, and, uh, you know, sometimes you, you feel like you take an opportunity to teach him or reinforce things for him, and I say, Harry... Uh, what, what are the two most important uh, things to know uh, in the world? I said, there's really only two things you need to know. And he says, one, you have to be nice to other people. I said, that's right. <laughs> and what's the other one? He says, <clears throat> uh, the, the greatest uh, uh, songwriter of modern times is Bob Dylan. That's right. That's, that's the other one.
It's all you need to know in life. This man first appeared on the uh, old show in 1984, and he was last here in 1993. We couldn't be more happy and more honored to have him with us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Bob Dylan. Yeah.